0: You know, maybe your first party site is actually pretty decent and is holding the line, but you keep getting pushback from marketing to just keep adding more third party content. And that is just really slowing the site down. And that's one of the things that issue is, is bigger than engineering. You need to have the company kind of come to an agreement on what your your strategy is gonna be around third party.
1: That was Katie Hempenius, and this is Chasing Waterfalls, a podcast featuring conversations with the people working to make the web faster for everyone. My name is Tim Cadlick, I'm a web performance consultant and your host. The conversation with Katie was great. Like I think when I first got started with performance, it felt like, oh, performance itself is a niche topic. And then as with anything, the closer you look, the more you start to realize that there are these other niche topics within the niche topic. So it's interesting because in the performance community, you can find somebody who is Hyper focused on images, and other people are hyper focused on JavaScript, or even hyper focused on a particular JavaScript framework, or, or or data analysis, whatever it happens to be. And the thing that I think is so great about Katie is you can't pin her down. Like she is constantly sharing amazing information across the board, everything from images to JavaScript to data analysis to network stuff. Like she's just kind of everywhere and I think the conversation ends up being really rich for that reason like we talk about a lot of different things we talk about performance budgets images there's a whole bunch of stuff in this conversation it's fantastic before we get to that I do want to again thank my sponsors speed curve once again for sponsoring this episode one of the things that I, I I harp on a lot when it comes to performance work is the importance of monitoring specifically like having real user data is in my opinion, Ground zero. Like, you have to have strong real user data if you want any chance of performance continuing to be a focus in your organization. You have to be able to tie changes back to business requirements, to user behavior. You have to be able to build up that case. I also feel like, you know, without that real user data, you're always working or hypothetically. You don't know how things are actually translating in the real world. But at the same token, synthetic data is important. You need synthetic data for the cleanliness, right? Like it's the data is much cleaner. It's much easier to tie to uh, development changes to deployments because you're able to focus things in isolation. You can really dig deep on an entire session and find out what's happening in this particular browser over this particular type of network on this particular page. So it's massively important as well. And one of the things that I love about SpeedCurve curve is that you get both. Like you can have your synthetic and your real user data through their Lux product tied together in the same interface it may seem like a small thing but it's really really powerful because for one it's one user interface like you get comfortable with that one user experience that one user interface and you can use it to mine both your synthetic and real user data but you also it makes it easier i think to find connections between the data and speed curve will help you figure out like similar pages that are being tracked inside of uh, synthetically but as well as real user data And it just becomes easier for you to figure things out like this page gets a ton of traffic, we're actually not testing that particular page in synthetic, we should set that up, you can sort of see the connection between your synthetic results and your real user results. So how close are those metrics aligning, which obviously, there's going to be some discrepancy all the time, but you may be able to tweak it a little bit like you may find that you know, if there's too much of a discrepancy between what you're seeing in the real world and your synthetic stuff, then that's a signal you probably need to tweak your synthetic settings a little bit. I can't think of many, if any, performance monitoring tools that will give you both in the same location like Speed Curve does. So I think it's one of those things that's the sneaky powerful. And one of the things that has me really excited about that product. So again, you can give a free trial on SpeedCurve. Go to speedcurve.com. And thank you once again to them for sponsoring. And now on to the conversation with Katie. Katie, how's it going?
0: Good, glad to be here, thanks for having me.
1: I'm a very excitable kind of person, so I say this to pretty much everybody who comes on, but I have been so excited that we were able to make this work and get a chance to talk to you. I was trying to remember the other day of when it was that I first stumbled on you and your work and I think it was a year, two years ago, something like that, you had given a talk in San Francisco at a meetup?
0: Yes, good memory, that was a couple of years ago now.
1: It was, and uh, but I saw this video after it came out, and I'm just I'm always very excited when other people are talking about performance, and so I immediately started following and paying attention to what you were doing. Were you at Chrome at the time when you gave that talk?
0: No, I was at Fitbit at some point. Yeah, I, I came over to Google, and even then, I wasn't focusing on performance. Um, oh. It's only been somewhat recently that I've I've started doing this full time.
1: So, was it a conscious move to move into performance?
0: Yes, I was always interested in performance, and. I ended up giving a talk at Smashing Conf yeah. a year ago now, and that's when I kind of realized that there were other people at Google doing this as well. And then that's when I started working with Addy. I was doing twenty percent time on their team, and then eventually ended up moving over to the team full time.
1: All right, and so now you're in—is it Devrel or yes? And focusing on performance, correct. Okay, so one of the things I was starting to get to, the thing that stands out in the last few months in particular is just performance is a huge thing for Chrome. It's something that they've made a focus over the last few years, very vocally. But it always feels like, The folks that I know there, I can kind of pinpoint like this is their particular area of the performance spectrum that they focus on. And what I love about you is I haven't been able to do that at all yet because it's, you are just sharing amazing tip after tip of optimizations ranging from JavaScript stuff to more network-based things, in addition to just a ton of data, that kind of stuff, like all this research that you're putting into, is that now part of the full 80% of the job? Is that the 20% where you're kind of off doing the investigative research into HTTP Archive and all that.
0: Yeah, I guess that now falls under my uh, like official job description. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I should be doing my my actual work instead <laughs> of going off and like making graphs and being like, oh, I found this data, I measured some things. But yeah, it, it does fall roughly. It somehow relates to what I do.
1: It's great because it's it's literally everything from the entire spectrum. From I've seen you talk about network to browser to specific optimizations to you know data, sort of looking at this holistically and historically, and you know and cultural stuff as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of actually what makes performance so interesting is it's very hard to draw it like a box around and say, these are all the categories that go into it. I mean, there's so much that affects performance. I think that makes it interesting.
1: When you're first, I think, getting into performance or maybe from an outside perspective as well, you view performance as itself as like this area of specialty, right? And then once you start getting into it, you find out within performance, there's just so much ground that that covers. That is, it's a big word, as it turns out.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, and we were talking about performance. But the conversation was getting at the point, you know, do you optimize for the network transfer time? Do you optimize for the computing time, like how much it takes to process something? You know, like, there's so many different ways you can define a performance.
1: Just curious about that conversation. Like, how did you answer that? How do you tell a company, maybe they're just getting started with performance perspective and trying to figure out where to place their focus?
0: I think it will depend a little bit on the vertical you're in. So I mean, I think in general, everybody wants a fast initial page load, but I do think it's fair to say that for some verticals, that's gonna matter more. Like the verticals I have in mind are for instance, retail. Or uh, news publications, like news publications. If you can speed up your site, that's really, you know, if you're serving ads, you're going to serve a lot more ads. There's a really strong business case there. But to be honest, this might be. I shouldn't be saying this because uh, what I focus on is performance. But for instance, say you're a product who, where someone has to sign up and they're hooked. You know, they bought a subscription for a year. You might not care quite as much about performance because you know once you have a customer, they're going to stick with you. Yeah, so I'd say in general, obviously looking at that initial page load, and I know a lot of people, it's like, oh, do we uh, emphasize time to interactive or first content will paint? And I would tend to say, look at both of them. I think people have a tendency of where one of those would be really good for their site and one of those will be really bad. And then they'll automatically just choose to focus on the metric that makes them look good and throw out the other one <laughs> <laughs> where, but if that one other number is really bad, like that's, that's indicating there's something wrong there and something that needs to be fixed. Don't fall into that trap.
1: Like people love to look for that one metric to rule them all. But I think that's how we got into this situation where I feel we sort of collectively woke up from a few years ago when we realized that we were all optimizing for page load time and at the expense of everything else. Yeah. So you gave a talk at I/O with Addy. There's one little stat thing that I've just been fascinated about ever since I heard it uh, kind of in whisper things. And now that you sit down on stage, I feel like it's probably safe to bring out publicly. But I've been fascinated by this the statement you made on stage about the number of companies that you're seeing with like performance regressions. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. What was that stat?
0: The stat we used in the presentation was 40% of large brands regress on performance in six months.
1: That's a very big, discouraging number.
0: In fact, I think actually the exact one might be even like large brands focusing on performance. So even like not even inadvertently, I should go up and pull up the exact wording. But yes, that is pretty stunning.
1: Right. So it's not just like any company who hasn't been doing any performance work like this. They're regressing from what they're regressing from.
0: I think, you know, comparing what was the performance say in January versus July or, you know, like a six months differential. Did it get worse or did it get better?
1: And again, to emphasize your point, these are companies that are already they're prioritizing performance in some way. It's not that they're ignoring it. They're doing performance work and the regressions are still happening.
0: So to be fair, I was not the one gathering those statistics. So I can't talk to that in much detail. But I think why I personally found that statistic interesting. So I don't know exactly who the large brands were, um, is that these are pretty large companies. They have the resources to put behind it. You know, it's not like, oh, it's a startup of four people. And that's just, performance is not top priority right now we have other things well, presumably, these are large companies, and you would think that they would have the, the resources to prioritize this. So, even with all those resources, they're still struggling with performance. And actually, yesterday or two days ago, um, this week, I've been digging into HTTP archive data, basically looking at the same thing like, how do site performance change over time? And I was looking at the Alexa top 10,000 site. But it was interesting because I posted the results for the top 10,000 sites, but then I was also looking at like, you know does performance for the top 100 or top 10? Is it any better or worse? And the very large sites, they did do a little bit better than the group as a whole, but they still had performance issues. You know, no one's immune. Though I will say Wikipedia is is killing it. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) They've got a a killer team over there. They're doing some great work.
0: Yeah, you look at their numbers and you're like, I think maybe like the site changed by one kilobyte or something in size. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Their numbers were awesome. Now everyone else, their numbers were changing.
1: There's a like a tendency, too, to view this as performance or even like accessibility as something that should be theoretically easier for these large companies with all the resources. But I think the fact that they're suffering from the same sort of regressions, the same sort of growing size hits at performance being a little bit of a bigger issue than just these sort of technical concerns and know-how. There's a lot more going on into making an organization actually have this sort of culture of performance established.
0: Yeah. And what I thought was interesting about the numbers were seeing like, so maybe your, I don't know, images on your site included by increased by 50 kilobytes. Yes, that could be better, but that's not the end of the world. But it was interesting seeing, I guess, in particular, the amount of JavaScript that was increasing because you're like, okay, this actually is a problem. This is going to have a, a statistically significant impact on performance. It's not like we're, we're splitting hairs over, you know, your CSS increasing by five kilobytes or anything like that.
1: I think I saw the tweet and the JavaScript was what? Do you remember the numbers? Do you have the the numbers uh, handy? I think it was like what, half a meg at the 90th percentile or something like that.
0: Yeah, 530 kilobytes at the 90th percentile, 265 kilobytes at the 75th percentile, and the 50th percentile, so median. That's 90 kil- kilobytes. That's that's substantial.
1: Yeah, and that's that's network size, right? That's transfer size. Yeah yeah right, so you're talking even more once you get it onto the device, and the device has to do the parse compilation and execution of it yeah so it's a it's a it's a hefty little sum. any sense of how much of that is third party versus first party?
0: No, um that's on my to do list to dig into more. The other thing I'm curious about is is this just you know one kilobyte at a time uh, site mm. sizes are increasing, or is it oops, we accidentally included this module that really should not be here. And in one you know commit, the size of the site jumped by 100 kilobytes. So I'm currently digging into that and I'm interested to see what the answer is.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way of framing it too because the two narratives that tend to accompany the growth of JavaScript, you have the one narrative which is talking about third-party aspect, right? And third-party resources coming in and destroying the performance of a page. The other narrative is... Around JavaScript and just our tendency to reach for big frameworks and, you know, additional modules and plugins and how quickly that all adds up. And so hopefully diving into the detail would at least give you a little bit of a sense of to which of those things we can actually blame in this particular situation or if it's a combination of both. Yeah. How do you advise teams to avoid that? Like if, if I'm looking at these numbers, right, they're discouraging numbers. I the the regression is discouraging, the the increase in because there's not like a quick technical fix to this, right? There's there's more to it than just roll out this optimization or that optimization.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can talk about things like, I don't know, code splitting or compressing payloads. But after that, you start, you know, particularly when looking at JavaScript, it's kind of like one-off things or, or I don't know, you know, switch to smaller libraries. But after that, it's, it starts to come down to what the architecture of your application is. I mean, I think the first thing is to just, Be aware of it. I mean, that's why we've been talking about performance budgets so much because, you know, the people we know who are using them, everybody said, like, oh, they've caught things that we should have caught ourselves, but just nobody catches when we're pushing code. But you could have humans try to check for it, but it's, like, it's something that that computers can do so well. Computers are very good at measuring the size (laughs) of your code. Just do it. Um, That's a starting place. What's actually coming to mind now is... Performance is very complex, but at the same time, for a vast majority of sites, I do think there's a quite a bit of low-hanging fruit there. I know just an article I was looking at yesterday. Maybe as Paul posted something on the HTTP Archive trying to determine what percentage of sites are using gzip or Brotli, some form of text compression, and it's only about two-thirds of uh, text-based resources are being compressed, which is wow. like that's low-hanging fruit, like. Everybody should be compressing everything. So that's like really significant that a third of the resources on the web are not being compressed. Sure. And that's something you can totally fix in a day. You know, it's nice isolated task. You don't have to, you know, switch out frameworks or anything like that. So yes, performance is really tricky. But at the same time, with a lot of sites, you can maybe off the top of your head point out maybe like five different things that will not solve all their problems, but make a significant impact.
1: Sure. And I think I found probably the same. And that's also where a tool like Lighthouse or Web Page Test, you know, or PageSpeed Insight, something that, that tries to give you some sort of a grade on this checklist of common or those low-hanging fruit optimizations can be a really invaluable tool for something like that to be set up to give you this report card and say, hey, you're getting a low score based on these kind of base-level optimizations that we would expect to see in place.
0: That's part of the reason why I think it's just interesting to look at the, the size of sites because it's not a perfect metric, but in some ways I think it gives you a kind of rough idea of how easy it is to optimize your site. Because I do think you can probably make the statement that as you push the envelope further and further, you are going to have to work harder and harder to optimize those bytes. But if someone is shipping two megabit website like you know like there's some quick and easy fixes that will make their site significantly smaller but as you get to smaller and smaller sites to keep improving yes it becomes way more difficult and that's when you start you know hearing like um, we shared a bunch of things in our presentation at io about what twitter's doing they had some really neat optimizations and i think part of the reason for that is they're at a place that their app is small enough that in order to keep pushing the envelope you really have to start thinking outside of the box
1: it's easy to get excited about that stuff right like the last percentage like the last 10 percent the last like those
0: very glamorous yeah but nobody wants to hear about how they should turn on gzip yeah
1: yeah, like, do we need to be doing better as a community to be still advocating for things like GZIP and things that, you know, maybe feel a little bit more mundane or old school because they're so well established? And if so, how do we get people excited about those things?
0: I find it interesting that you're touching on, which is something I've thought about a lot. It's like, how do you get people excited about stuff? Because there's some topics that people get really excited about, because they're kind of glamorous. And then there's some topics that like nobody wants to touch because, <laughs> you know, like no one cares. <laughs> These are topics that could still have a lot of impact but just they don't have the same mystique that i don't know maybe javascript optimizations do uh that's a good question
1: <laughs> let's solve it no i'm just doing yeah
0: yeah okay yeah, i don't know what the answer is there no,
1: that's all right that's all right you mentioned that you were talking a lot about the performance budget stuff lately i know you did a lot of work this around lighthouse and light wallet Which I want to talk about as well. In case anybody is listening to this and not super familiar with this concept, can you kind of give a 101 overview? What is the performance budget and how are folks using it?
0: Performance budgets is the idea that you set targets for different performance metrics of your site and then you track them over time and also uphold and and adhere to these these standards that you set you can uh, define performance budgets in a couple different ways well three ways that you tend to see one is based on some sort of timing based metric. so for instance like setting a target for first content of paint or time to interactive the advantage there is it kind of like directly measures performance the downside is you just see a ton of variation in what those metrics are from page load to page load even if you're you know, isolating everything in the environment and everything else is held constant. Another way that you can do it, and this is probably what I see most people doing right now, and this is also what Lighthouse supports, which is setting budgets for the amount of resources on a page. So either for the page overall or more frequently for setting budgets for the individual resource types. So for instance, if we should have less than 200 kilobytes of JavaScript or um, less than 100 kilobytes of images and then the third approach that you can take is um, some people do budgeting based on their lighthouse score so you know making sure that their score like never goes below 90 for example
1: do you have a recommendation out of those three for what you have seen works
0: i would say in general doing budgets based on resource sizes i don't think budgets for timing based metrics has really been solved yet we've been looking at it with lighthouse um, I'm sure other people have been looking at it as well. The frustration there is, as I mentioned, the timing metrics can be very inconsistent. And for, I think, performance budgets to really impact how people work, you want to be able to trust them. And so timing budgets tend to basically end up acting like a flaky test. Ideally, you want to set a performance budget and then say, hey, if uh, every commit." fails the performance budget, we're not going to push that code, and with timing budgets it's very difficult to do because you run it once, maybe it passes, but the next time it fails. So uh, I think in order to fix that issue, probably we need to either bring in multiple runs where you're taking like averages or medians, or I don't know, maybe some more sophisticated math to try to look at differentials
1: the trust that you mentioned there that's a huge part of this right because if you're talking about using a performance budget in a development workflow potentially in a way that you're mentioning which is you know breaking the build right like stopping a deploy from occurring if this budget is exceeded like having trust in the stability and reliability of that budget being accurate is absolutely critical because you're already asking developers a lot right you're You're already asking them to sort of say, we're going to introduce this new step into the development process, and it's going to potentially not let you ship code unless you would, you know, fix it. And if that is not reliable in any way, you're going to have a hard time getting folks to get on board with this.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean if that was the case, I was a developer, I'm like, nope, I don't want to use that. And, and I think the timing thing is interesting. So for some slides I was putting together, I was like, I just needed an example of the variation. I was like, let me try running web page tests on YouTube. And in my mind, like, YouTube is a very, like, well-established site. It's big. It should have fairly consistent load times. I was getting anywhere between two and I think four seconds mm-hmm. over 10 runs for how long the page took to load. I was like, it, which was way more variance than even I was expecting. Just as an example, like, even YouTube's load times, in my experience, vary a lot. And that's with web page test, everything's, you know, lab environment.
1: Yeah, that's quite the range there in variation. Yeah. Okay, so, so resource sizes, which are, they're a symptom, like you already pointed out, it's a symptom of other performance issues. So it's not like they're completely decoupled from the timing metrics anyway. Do you recommend starting with that timing metric and then coming up with a fuzzy approximation for what those resource sizes should be? Do you recommend doing resource sizes based on your current situation? Like, how do you, where do you come in with that?
0: Yeah, I'd probably recommend tracking and being aware of your timing metrics. They represent the goal. That's what you care about. It's just that they're a bad thing to use for blocking builds. And that's where resource sizes come in.
1: Okay, and if an organization wants to start using resource sizes in their performance budget, how do they come up with what those budgets should be?
0: A couple different ways to do this. One, you could start with the current state of your app and just say, hey, we're not going to get any slower or any larger. Let's start here and try to maintain that. Or you could be more ambitious and say, "Like, let's try to make this smaller by 20%. Or you could, could kind of work backwards from what your performance goal is. So if you're like, hey, I know I want to be have a three second time interactive on 4g starting there and then working back and figuring out how much resources you can afford to ship. And then maybe one more way that we sometimes see people use is that they will look at their competitors and then work backwards from there and just set out to beat their competitors.
1: Okay. So either like hold the ground, go 20% lower than whatever your current sizes are, start at the timing and abstract it down into resource sizes or a competitive thing. Like those are the four things you just went over, right?
0: Yes. And I would probably, I think it does matter a little bit on where your product is in its life cycle. So if you're starting out with a fresh product or a product that's very young, I would say you don't have a lot of technical debt in the performance sense. You don't have like a lot of bad architecture decisions that are slowing you down. So I would start with a pretty aggressive performance budget, but if you're starting with a legacy application, you might need to be somewhat less aggressive just due to the fact that you're working with something that might take some time to change and then speed up.
1: There's plenty of tools for this, right? Like there's bundle size, you came out with Light Wallet. Like you were the primary or one of the primary people working on that, correct? Yes. I'm guessing since that's so new, it's a fair guess that most people listening haven't run into it yet. So what exactly are we talking about with Light Wallet?
0: Yeah, so it's part of the newest version of Lighthouse, the command line version of Lighthouse, so not the Chrome extension, not the DevTools version. And just update your Lighthouse NPM module, and then to use it, create a but we're calling a budget.json file. In reality, you can call it anything, but that's what we're calling it. Um, and that you can just kind of think of as a config file where you specify the budgets for your site. So one of the things we realized when we started to develop this is that it's hard to come up with a universal budget. There's, you know, mm-hmm. budgets can vary so much based on the type of site that you have. So in this budget.json file, you declare your budgets. Pretty simple format. You basically say, you know, you know resource type, JavaScript, budget, you know, 300 kilobytes, resource type images, budget, 200 kilobytes, and so on. And then you run Lighthouse from the command line and use the budget path file to, you know, point Lighthouse to your budget path. And if you've done that, then when you open up the Lighthouse report, you'll see a summary of the resources on your page as well as uh, information on whether they, you know, pass or fail the budgets that you've set up pretty simple to get started with, I would say, like, you know, five minutes and you should have it running. So.
1: Wow, which is nice. And, and if you're a site that has multiple different page types that are very different, say an e sh- site, and you want to uh, have separate budgets for home versus product versus search. You know how would that look? Would that be three separate budget JSON files?
0: Yeah. So long okay. term, um, we're talking about adding the ability to put all those budgets into one file because we'll add a property probably that says like something like path that allows you to basically do like wildcard matching to to budgets kind of like almost similar to the format that robots.txt uses. So you could do some neat stuff with that, like declare a default budget, but then have override that with specific budgets for different sites. But that has not been shipped yet, we're still talking about that. So right now you would just create different budget files locally and then just point to a different budget file when you run Lighthouse, depending on the page that you're budgeting.
1: Yeah, and the nice thing too is anybody doing this, they're gonna get the rest of the Lighthouse stuff as well. So they're gonna see, again, the low-hanging fruit stuff, is going to get surfaced as part of the full lighthouse report maybe it's not what surfaced as budget but they're able to get to the full report through this as well correct correct yeah awesome so the budget json file by the way that was the part that really excited me about this i think that's really cool because it feels like there's all these different tools right that we can do budgets in we can set budgets in different monitoring tools we can set budgets in lighthouse we have. A bunch of different command line tools some of them that are using you know common apis underneath some of them that aren't but that all have some concept of a budget and this feels like there's a nice portable format here that could potentially in theory be used in all of these different tools is that on the roadmap to somehow take budget.json and maybe extract it a little bit from lighthouse and make it its own well, like you said, like a robots.txt thing, but its own separate thing that is sort of viewed as not a Google thing, not a Lighthouse thing, but a, like, I don't know, a community thing or a a pseudo standard for any tools that want to do budget enforcement.
0: Uh, Yes, we've definitely talked about that. I mean, if you look at the format now, there's no, like, Lighthouse budget, you know, whatever. Like, it's it's generic. Yeah, I think that would be super cool. I think the thought was maybe we get LightWallet out there, see what people's feedback is on it. You know, is the current kind of API style, does it work for them or is there something better out there? And then go from there. Because I agree. I mean, it'd be awesome if, yeah, there was just a standard format and no matter what tool you're using, the format works with it.
1: Sure. That makes sense. I'll also be really curious. I'm going to circle back with you in a few months to find out to see how people are using it in terms of how many different budgets people have set up. Because that that's a conversation that comes up a lot. I think whenever folks are looking at performance budgets, it's, you know, we have different page types. We have different device types. You know, how far do you go down this rabbit hole of setting different budgets up for each different scenario? Because there's a law of diminishing returns there at some point where you're just introducing a ton of complexity and overhead. Do you have any sort of idea right now, or even if not from the budget.json, but just from the folks that you've talked to and worked with?
0: I've talked with quite a few companies about this you know, in terms of what what would they want from their performance budget tooling. And yeah, I was actually really surprised at the number of people who said, indicated that they do page-specific performance budgeting. I kind of had in my mind, like, I was thinking, you know, one budget for the overall site. But yeah, a lot of people said that was important to them. I do think more granular performance budgets are are useful, so instead of saying, like, we should have 500 kilobytes or less on the page overall, it's much more useful to break that down by resource type, but I could see if you're trying to use a performance budget to ensure that a particular page never gets any bigger and you do have it broken down by resource type, then it does need to be on a page-by-page basis uh, because, you know, different pages have different resource compositions. And it's not necessarily that they have different performance goals for different pages. It's that they have different resources on each individual page.
1: So LightWallet and a lot of similar tools, right? They're great for enforcing that budget in the dev process. What about before that? When you've been talking to these companies and stuff around like how they're using budgets, I'm curious about how folks are, or if they are, looking at budgets earlier in the workflow process, like in the design stage, or if it's documented elsewhere and and communicated in a different way to different stakeholders in the organization because it feels like if you've got just light wallet or bundle size or something like that running in the dev environment that's a great start but it also feels like you have to have that budget has to have a little bit of a broader perspective and and broader integration and in a workflow for it to really have a chance of sticking without causing too much frustration
0: I agree, 'cause I mean realistically, say you build a big feature and it ends up being, you know, too large, it breaks your performance budgets. It's gonna be so tempting to say, let's just ship it anyway, then oh, uh, let's tear it up, start over and rewrite the whole thing. Especially since you probably had a deadline for like it need to get out the door at a certain time. So I do think it's very important that these things get brought up earlier. I haven't seen I guess good examples of how that is done. I know from my personal experience there'd be things i'd be working on where i would you know maybe push back to either product or design saying like why don't we like tweak this 10 percent, and you know we won't have to bring in an external module i can just write everything from scratch Mm -hmm. for that to work you do need be in a position where you can get product to buy in on that
1: sure because that's a big balance there too like that whole conversation around pulling the module and just have it working and move on versus yeah if we take a little bit of time we can rewrite this ourselves much smaller and get better performance but then you have get this sort of performance versus productivity trade-off that maybe it's at the heart of a lot of what you're seeing in terms of javascript growth over the last year is maybe that conversation isn't being had enough maybe we're not being critical enough in evaluating do we take a little bit of time internally to deal with this or do we just grab one of the Thousands of packages or modules available, and just pull it in.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times I think once something is in, it can be so difficult to remove. If anything, so people are like, "Ah." Uh, I mean, I remember like uh, you know removing jQuery. You're like, "I'm pretty sure nothing's going to break," <laughs> but yeah. like presumably anything on this website could break if I remove this.
1: Yeah, I think you had the same thing with upgrading it. I mean, like when I was a, i was at sneak for a little bit, and from a security perspective, did some digging through HTTP Archive around like versions of libraries and jquery versions like they linger like you put out like jquery 1.2 or 1.3 been out for years and it's just all over the place or two point you know the people upgrading let alone pulling out a library that is as involved as something like a, a, you know, one of the major JavaScript frameworks can be a very like stressful, harrowing process.
0: Oh yeah. And like an ideal world, like the code was beautifully written and so that's like nice isolation and blah, blah, blah. But you know, sometimes that isn't (laughs) the case and you're like, oh, this is just really nasty to untangle and remove. And then it becomes really tempting to just leave it there.
1: Yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's definitely a problem I don't think we've solved yet, and I don't know exactly what the right solution is that either. We'll have to have separate conversations where we solve this, we solve the performance educational thing, like we'll just solve all of these things together, I think that'd be great.
0: Yeah, I was thinking, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to calculate like half-life, so to speak, of jQuery, because you know how like, uh, different, like I don't know, radioactive elements have half-lives, it'd be like that, but for modules, you know, because <laughs> I would be surprised <laughs> if 10 years from now you're still seeing, like, I don't know, 10% of sites have jQuery in them or something, <laughs> like it just never left
1: No, well, i i agree i think it also i mean tying it back to one of the very first things that you were talking about on this where you were talking about the regression thing i feel like there's a very similar situation here where it's easier to get the initial resources and the initial push to to do the initial performance work to do the initial work to get jquery involved in your site to do the initial work to change over to a react architecture or whatever it's much easier to get that, it feels like, than to have the concerted long-term resources necessary to then support and maintain and potentially deprecate and do things like that. That feels like the harder part of the process. It feels like there's the initial burst and then things kind of linger and get to this point where we have code rot and things that are, maybe we let sit too long and then, we just start with another re-architecture all over again.
0: Yeah. And maybe that's something where kind of engineering management can set the tone that, you know, for example, the best amount of lines of code to add is not add any or just even, um, I know one of my previous teams at Google, there was like a, maybe like a month or so where there was a really big push to get rid of like, you know, dead code basically, you know, they would do a, you know, big burn down chart. People were encouraged to pick things up. So it was very clear that it was something that like mat- mat- mattered to the organization overall and it was prioritized and it was a good thing to work on. So it wasn't like people were like, oh, well, the only thing that I should be working on is adding stuff, making it clear that sometimes removing stuff is just as important.
1: Yeah, sure. Maybe you have like a special dedicated sprint that comes up periodically, you know, w- w- some sort of regular cadence that is code golf sprints or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like
0: Once a quarter, how much can you remove? Yeah.
1: The engineering support, the top-down support, that's such a, a critical component of this entire conversation. There are limits to how much of this is going to stick after that initial push if you don't have the backing and the support from the organization to keep those resources around to maintain and, and deal with this long-term. If we can safely say that, you know, for a large percentage of organizations simply maintaining a certain level of performance is going to be a challenge. Why do you think that is? What do you think the contributing factors are that help to determine whether or not you are going to be one of the 40% who's going to regress in the next six months, or whether you're going to be one of the companies that manages to go in the opposite direction and either maintain or improve the situation?
0: I think the organizational part is key, because certainly something I hear from like everyone is that you know maybe your first-party site is actually pretty decent and is holding the line but you keep getting pushback from marketing to just keep adding more third-party content and that is just really slowing the site down and that's one of those things that issue is is bigger than engineering you need to have the company kind of come to an agreement on what your your strategy is going to be around third party I think that's Big part of it. Yeah. And I think the other thing, then maybe the other part is just not understanding. And granted, maybe for not all companies, you can draw that correlation, but not maybe realizing the business impact of decisions, like adding things to your application. That's not free, so to speak. Like there's a cost there.
1: Yeah. And I think you're right. I think those two are both, they go in hand hand. The other thing I think that you kind of, that's going back again to your HTTP archive uh, tweet about like, The stats that had grown over time, we kind of zeroed in on JavaScript and talked about that a lot. But the other one that jumped out was the image weight. So, and I think that was more like a raw size thing that was kind of eye-opening. At the median, it didn't seem like there was any change over the last year, but the raw size at like the 90th percentile, you know, as you started to get up there, we were talking over a megabyte of additional images on any given page, which is, it's a lot. It's a lot, especially when you're talking, what, 1.8 megabytes, I think is what you saw for at the 90th percentile for sites as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense, I guess, right? We've got high resolution displays that have come out. All sorts of data shows that people like images on their sites. You know, it invokes emotion and it kind of, certainly if you're shopping, you want to see what you're going to be shopping for. There's all sorts of good reasons for putting images onto your site, but we obviously have to balance that with performance. If you were to give people a couple things that they should be zeroing in on to try and minimize the impact of those images, what would those be?
0: I think the biggest thing would just be to systematize how you treat your images because really it only takes one super high resolution image that accidentally gets uploaded to your website to just balloon its size. So if you can set up a script, probably moving to image CDNs would be like the more advanced level, but for a lot of people, just setting up a local script to make sure the images are compressed and the right size would make a huge, huge difference. So I was testing out LightWallet. I was picking off random big brands to run, and I was on one you know, household name, and their site was 13 megabytes. Wow. And 12 of those megabytes were images. Oh no. And, uh, and there was just no need, it was so, so sad. If nothing else, just make sure the images are the right size and then for bonus points, compress them. And then if you really want to be an all-star, you know, start looking into to WebP or image lazy loading. But a lot of times when I see sites with these huge image sizes, it's just because it, they're serving really, really large images that are unnecessary.
1: Yeah. So the image optimization definitely seems like an example of the low hanging fruit that maybe we don't talk about quite as much as some of the other stuff today. I think most of the performance conversations that right now tend to dominate around the JavaScript techniques, but the good news is that if you are sitting at 13 megabytes, let's say hypothetically uh, with 12 megabytes of images, you know, it's one of those things that introducing something in that build process can immediately get you some really, really big wins.
0: Yeah. And as we talked about, images are not going anywhere, nor should they, know, they do add a lot of value to the, the site experience, but you just need to handle them correctly.
1: Right. We never make things faster in a vacuum, right? Performance doesn't exist in a vacuum. We do it because we expect that it's going to help the user and it's going to help the business. As much as some of us performance folks, we may love the idea of a 10 kilobyte Site that uses no web fonts and has one tiny thumbnail, and its performance is all get out and loads instantly, which is great, but it's not going to solve the business needs or the user needs for the bulk of the web. It's always about balancing, balancing this richness of experience with the performance of that experience.
0: Oh, exactly. I think like shopping experience is a really good example of this. For instance, when I'm scrolling through stuff, maybe I want a lower quality image because I just want the items to load quickly as I'm scrolling but then when I'm actually looking at a particular product I love it when they have high resolution images because I you know really want to see what the product looks like Mm. Um, and that's an example where it's just not one size fits all
1: yeah that's where you have to be very creative I think with some of the solutions right well Katie thank you uh so much if people wanted to keep up on what you're doing and what you're working on How would they do that?
0: Uh, You can find me on Twitter. I'm just my name, Katie Hempenius, and that's H-E-M like a skirt, (laughs) P-E-N like a penny right with, I-U-S.
1: One of my favorite Twitter accounts to follow just because it's so much useful and fascinating information that pops up all the time. Not to put any pressure on you, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Definitely love to have you back on at some point again.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Katie as much as I did. Like I said, Katie, is the, the, the breadth of her knowledge is fantastic. It's, it's incredible. And it was just a real pleasure talking to her, and I am pretty positive she'll have to be on uh, in the future again because there's just so much more we could even get into. If you enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to make sure that you don't miss out on any of the other fantastic upcoming episodes, please subscribe in your favorite podcast, subscription service, or application. Should be in just about all of them. You know, and if you feel so inclined, feel free to leave a comment or review. That's always appreciated. It really helps to get the word out about the podcast. There's some really great, fantastic conversations coming up, and I really want to make sure that as many people as possible get to listen to that. The podcast is produced, as always, by Steph Colburn from Edit Audio, and the intro and outro music that you heard is done by Daryl Banner. It's the 8-bit cover of TLC's Chasing Waterfalls, so thank you, Daryl, for providing that. Thanks, Steph, for doing such an incredible job every single time of editing the podcast and getting it transcribed. And thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next time.